Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Next week, we'll be back with a fresh off-script, discussing the seasonally appropriate question, should Christians watch horror movies? But this week, I have Interview 7 for you. An analytic philosopher unleashes logic on the doctrine of the Trinity. In my previous interview with Professor Dale Tuggy, we discussed his journey of faith. In this conversation, I ask him to discuss logical and biblical problems with the Trinity. This is a higher-level conversation, but well worth a listen if you are at all curious about the Trinity or are interested in hearing how analytic philosophers approach complex doctrines. For more information about Professor Tuggy and his work, including his amazing podcast, visit trinities.org. Here now is our discussion. Welcome, Dale Tuggy, to Restitutio for another interview. Thanks for having me, Sean. Today, I want to talk about some theology related to the Trinity, related to biblical Unitarianism. And to start with, I thought I'd ask you the question, what do you see as some of the biggest logical problems with the Trinity? The biggest logical problem that's been discussed by a lot of Christian philosophers, including me in professional papers, is if you just take what seem to be basic claims that are in the so-called Athanasian Creed and you just line them up, it looks like a mutually inconsistent set. So the Father's divine, the Son's divine, the Holy Spirit's divine, the Father, Son, and Spirit are non-identical. Those are three things, not one. And yet there's only one God. Yeah, but what is it to be divine? It's, it's to be a God, right? <laughs> it's not to be a part of a God or somewhat similar to a God. A divine being means the same thing as a God. So if we've got three divine beings, it looks like we have three gods, but then we just turned right around and said there's, there's only one God. But most, you know, just as to be human is to be a human. So you're human, and that means that you're a human. So to be divine means to be a divine being, that is to say a God. If there are three of those, you've got three gods. And so what just went wrong with that reasoning? Well, now we're off to the races with all the theories that analytic philosophers come up with. Another big logical problem I would say with the Trinity is just all the lousy sophistical arguments for it. Apologetics people are particularly bad about this. Apologetics people have generally not studied philosophy and logic and uh, they like to break out standard lists of logical fallacies and beat up cultists with them but uh, they're usually not very clear about what it is they're arguing. So they'll give arguments like well the Father's divine, the Son's divine, the Holy Spirit's divine. Trinity! Or the Father's divine, Son's divine, Spirit's divine. And those are all non-identical. And there's only one God. Trinity! Wait. <laughs> Trinity, wait, what's supposed to follow exactly? I mean, why, why isn't it just an inconsistent set of claims? We, we need to go slower here and be more careful. And it looks like we need to parse this crucial term that's in the creeds, that the Father and Son are homoousian, that they are one usia, one essence or one substance. The terms essence and substance have meant many different things in philosophy. It could mean being made of the same stuff, like 
this pot and that pot are both made of clay. It can mean being the same kind of thing, like Dale is a human and Sean is a human. Or it can mean uh, being numerically the same thing as, like, you know, you are the same Usia as yourself and not as anyone else. You just can't throw out a few proof texts and say, there you go, Trinity. We have to spell out what, what the Trinity claim is. In what sense are we saying that the one God is tripersonal? What do we mean those persons to be? What does it mean that they're one Usia? Uh, so there's just a lot of bad, sloppy arguments. Uh, a lot of them also take this form, and this is more the, quote, deity of Christ and the Trinity per se. And I discussed these in the historical supplement to my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It's an argument like, only God can fill in the blank, but Jesus fill in the blank, therefore Jesus is God. The problem with these arguments generally is that the claim that only God can fill in the blank is contradicted by Scripture. Only God can forgive sins, Jesus forgave sins, therefore Jesus is God. Right. Right in the Gospel you see that people praise God that they've given such authority, that God has given such authority to men. <laughs> right. So, and then well, that Jesus, assumes that that property is not transferable. Yes, and then, and then it ignores that Jesus teaches that his followers can forgive sins as well. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> there it is. Or, you know, just the fill-in-the-blank could be, uh, be properly called God, like have the term God applied to it. So only God can be called God, the word God, hatheos in Greek, or maybe Elohim in, in Hebrew, or El or something. Only God can be called God. Jesus is called God, you know, maybe a couple of times. Uh, therefore, Jesus is God, or alternately, therefore, Jesus is fully divine. But look, the Bible never says that only God can be called by the term God, and it never says that only a being with a divine essence can be referred to using the term God. As we discussed briefly in the last episode, sometimes God terms are applied to humans, and that's okay. That's just an extension of the term. It's not the core usage, but you can understand why that's so. Right. Um, and there, But there's a whole raft of arguments like this. Some of them are invalid. That is, the conclusion doesn't really follow from the premises. And some of them are clearly valid, but they have a premise that's contradicted by Scripture. And you can't just ignore that. And you can't pretend that that premise is just self-evident, because it's generally not. So what I hear you saying is that a lot of the arguments that apologists use to support the Trinity are invalid, and that that's one of the major logical problems with the Trinity. Yeah, they're either invalid or they're valid but unsound, because they have a false premise. Right. And uh, Unitarians have been ruthlessly pointing out the false premise for a long time. People like John Biddle, for instance, has an interesting discussion of some of these arguments, or people like Samuel Clark. But yeah, we, you know, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. The temptation for an apologist is to act like some kind of corporate lawyer. They've been told what the conclusion is in advance, and they're just going to throw any old argument out there, anything that might persuade somebody. No, you got to be better than that. Right. That's not a proper methodology for arriving at a, a truth. I mean, you can have an intuition or a preferred argument, but you have to do the hard work of actually deriving the conclusion from the premises. Yeah, and to be fair, my uh, Christian professor friends that are philosophers 
they don't make these kind of logical mistakes generally. Now, they'll have a controversial premise in there that I'm going to want to argue with them about, but they're not just going to be doing this kind of quick proof texting or these really simplistic arguments with uninterpreted language. Uh, so there are people that know how to really uh, get in there and make a proper argument. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty rough field in apologetics. Do you want to mention any other logical problems, or can we move on to biblical problems? Another logical problem is that fans of social Trinitarianism that talk about God as this divine dance of wonderful kind of egalitarian friendships, they're just ignoring that it seems like tritheism. I mean, if you have three deities, three divine beings, three divine selves, and they cooperate most wonderfully and they sort of act like a unit, like the three musketeers, that's great. That's a neat vision there, but it's not a god. It's three gods, three all-powerful, completely good, all-knowing beings. So you, you can't just ignore the tritheism problem. Another problem that um, some people can get around and some can't is it's part of the Catholic tradition to say that the Father eternally generates the Son. Now, this is a mysterious claim, and it's actually not taught in Scripture anywhere, but they have a few proof texts for it. And the problem is that Arguably, it's an essential divine attribute to exist independently of anything else, to exist, as they say in Latin, a se, through oneself. So, if the Father eternally is causing the Son to exist, then the Son does not exist independently of any other. He exists because of that action of the Father. Whereas, on their theory, the Father himself does exist independently. So it looks like only the Father is divine, or only the Father is divine in the way that the one God would have to be divine. That's a logical problem, right? You're saying the persons are perfectly equal and equally divine, but you're saying that one eternally causes the other to exist, but then the first one is asse, uh, or independent, and the second one isn't. So they're not equally divine, or not divine in the same sense. Now, what some Protestants do, like William Lane Craig, is they quite correctly point out that the Bible simply doesn't teach eternal generation. And so they just get rid of that. Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and more traditional Protestants that emphasize historical creeds just hit the ceiling when you say that, because to them, the generation of the Son by the Father and the procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son, or else only the Father, those are just a core part of the Trinitarian theological tradition. So there's, there's a divide here. Some Trinitarians can get around that by getting rid of part of the Catholic tradition, and some are just stuck with it. Well, I think if you get rid of eternal generation, then you've got two divine brothers, not a father and a son, right? Yeah. They're the same age, and they're co-equal and co-essential. I mean, we're, we're talking about Siamese god twins or something here. This is, it's no longer a father and a son. Well, yeah, you might think they're a father and son just in how they operate or how they interact or something like that, but why isn't it the reverse way? Why doesn't the second one in, in charge of the first one? It becomes arbitrary then. Yeah. Right, and also the idea of eternal generation I think is contradictory. You have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but to generate is to come into existence, which presumes some sort of temporality, 
and then e- eternal is exactly the opposite claim. It's saying that there there never was a time when he he came into existence. So it seems like even just the term itself is I think it's not just paradoxical. It seems contradictory to me. Does it seem I'm, contradictory to you? No, I'm willing to grant that that it could mean just eternal dependence. So it's like generation. So generation normally means bringing something into existence. Right. So then there's a time when the thing doesn't exist, and then you exercise your generating power, and now it does exist at the later time, right? Right. There wouldn't be anything like that with eternal generation. Now, of course, the Logos theorists before Origin, they all thought that this did happen in time. They thought that for some platonic reason, God could not directly interact with creation. So then when it was time to create, presumably after an infinitely long time, he then took his internal logos and made it a second alongside him, as Tertullian says. This was a finite time ago. It was just before the Genesis creation. So maybe it's easier to make sense of that way. It's literally a generation. At first, there's the second being doesn't exist, and then he's generated, and then he comes into existence and exists. Right. That makes perfect sense to me. But can you explain how generation means dependence and not generate? I mean, I feel like if you're generating electricity, you don't have electricity, you turn some sort of turbine, and it generates electricity. So I, I don't know. I feel like causation and temporality are bound up in the term generation. Arguably, you could have a cause that's at the same time as its effect, and uh, I'm just willing to grant them that. So imagine you have a table holding up, I don't know, a basketball sitting on the table, and uh, imagine the table and the basketball have just always been there. So the basketball is there because of the table, but because I just said it went infinitely back, uh, there was never a time when the basketball was not on the table, but still it's there because of the table. And you could argue that at any given moment, uh, the basketball's at that position at that moment because of the table at that moment. This is all controversial. Some some would say that cause-effect relations, the effect has to be later than the cause. Yeah, if they can sure. be at the same time, then it can be defended as coherent. It seems like you're describing, you're not describing generation, though. I mean, the table is not generating the basketball in that analogy. They're just coexisting eternally in a dependent relationship. Yeah, so the idea is that a cause is the source of the effect. And it's allowing that there could be an eternal cause and effect, which, yeah, is different than we normally observe. The generator, the father, would would be the metaphysical source of the generatee, the son, it's just that this has always been. It's weird, yes. I'm not willing to say it's contradictory, but I am willing to say that this is absolutely not asserted by any scriptural writer. <laughs> right. They read the they they gleefully read this back into the sources after these speculations had developed. They wanted the sun to be divine in a sense that included eternity, like having always existed. And so that's why they had to have eternal generation and not generation before the creation. Right. They wanted them to be at the same level. But this move didn't get made until the time of origin. Tertullian in the early 200s still has the son being literally younger than the father. Right. This is normally pilloried as a crazy Arian claim. But no, this is what all the early Logos theologians thought. Yeah. 
So let's talk about some biblical problems with the Trinity. What would you say would be, for you, the top texts that troubled you when you used to believe in it or that you see troubling that belief now? It didn't trouble me when I believed in it because I was just assuming that these standard apologetics arguments were good arguments. So, you know, look, it calls the Son God, so it implies that the Son is divine, but there's only one God, so that sort of shoves Jesus within the Godhead, within the divine nature somehow. Thank God that I wasn't into all this confusion that now has resulted from Richard Bauckham's work, where people uh, talk about the divine identity and uh, Jesus being a sharer in the divine identity. It's pure confusion. Um, that's come into evangelicalism since I was changing my views about that. But the biggest biblical problems for the Trinity, I think, are things that I was not willing to consider back in the day. One is that it's never mentioned. You would expect it to be mentioned. Now, it's not that you have to reject all non-biblical terms. That's crazy. I mean, I just used the term ase or aseity. That's not a biblical term. Right comes from Latin. Uh, you could use a term like omnipotence. Uh, that's not exactly a biblical term. It's, I mean, it's related to pantocrator in Greek, but strictly speaking, it's not biblical. Or divine omnipresence. These are all good words. The scripture can teach something without using our current term for it. That's not a problem. But <laughs> a scripture can't teach you to worship something that it never mentions as such. So, if we're supposed to worship the Trinity, you would see a term, any term, that's supposed to refer to the three of them together. And that's exactly what you don't see. Now, when I first started looking into it, a Christian philosopher friend told me in all seriousness that if you want to know which terms refer to the Trinity in the Bible, it's any use of the term God where it's not specifically referring to the Father or the Son or the Spirit. In all the other instances, you're supposed to take it to be just the Trinity, the triune God. And I already knew at the time that this was wrong, because I had been reading Clark, Samuel Clark, but also I had read some other um, scriptural scholars. In fact, Carl Rahner, the Catholic scholar, makes this point, and various evangelical textual scholars make this point. The word God in the New Testament nearly always means the Father. Right. Arguably, in a small handful of cases, no more than half a dozen, I think fewer than that, it refers to the Son. And then sometimes it's used sort of sarcastically, you know, their God is their belly or of Satan, but never mind those. It's never ever used for the Trinity. That's just a wild anachronism. It's just never entered anybody's mind in the first century that any of the God terms refer to a tripersonal God or even a multipersonal being. Okay, but it's not mentioned, you know, how, how is it going to teach you to worship the one true God, and that's the Trinity, um, but it never mentions the Trinity as such, it only mentions the, so to speak, components of it. Um, but the Trinity itself is supposed to be an object of worship, right? Not just the Father, not just the Son, but the whole thing is supposed to be an object of worship. Another problem is, it's not clearly implied either that there's a triune God, but you would expect it to be. Okay, it doesn't have to use the term... As long as it clearly implies it, then all the readers would have got that, and you would see people running around in the 100s and the 200s uh, believing in a tripersonal deity, just maybe they didn't have a word for it yet. Okay. We don't have to have a word for everything, right? 
It's not right. implied. Nobody mentions a tripersonal deity until the later part of the Nicene controversy. The earliest references to any God term that I think refers to the Trinity as God, the three of them together as a God, is in the 370s. And I've looked through other places like Hillary, but I, I can't find an earlier one than that. You don't see them around the time of Nicaea. Suppose I told you that Moby Dick was really about World War II. Uh -huh. A great coming world war, let's put it that way. Look, if, if every intelligent reader for several decades read Moby Dick and nobody got that it was predicting a, a future war, that's just wrong. It's not a clear implication at all. If it was a clear implication, people would get it. Right. It's not explicitly taught, yeah. and it's also not a clear implication because, from a historical perspective, people didn't get it. Right. And they super smart people, like the smartest people, like Origen. Um, and even Tertullian's very impressive in, in a certain way. He's obnoxious, but he's also impressive. They, they didn't get it, so you can't say it's a clear implication. This, this would be not an effective mode for God to communicate it. And then suddenly it's discovered after the year 350. It's not discovered at all, right? It's projected there. Right. I was not willing to even consider that. I just, it's only the silly cultists who insist that uh, we should get rid of all non-biblical terms, right? That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm perfectly good with non-biblical terms as long as they're clear and useful terms. It's just that you don't see what you would expect to see Look, the Father and Son are clearly presented as different beings. The Father knows more than the Son. The Father sends the Son. The Son obeys the Father. Right? All that presupposes their two beings. The Father empowers the Son to do miracles and to teach divine wisdom. There are two objects of worship in various places in the New Testament, like Philippians 2 and Revelation 5. Jesus has a God over him, namely the Father, so look, no, no God is God over himself. No one can be God over himself. Not literally. If X is the God over Y, then X and Y are two different beings. Of course, the typical comeback is this is all because of his incarnation. Before that, they were totally equal. And then after that, he's limited or veiled his divinity in some way. Yes, there's a big can of worms here. There's several cans of worms of speculation. I mean, one way to see how it doesn't help is Take the first example of Jesus knowing less than the Father. If you say he knows less than the Father in virtue of having a human nature, whatever you know and don't know by a nature, you just know or don't know. It's the person that knows, not the nature, right? Right. So if he's omniscient in virtue of having a divine nature, then it just follows that Jesus just is omniscient himself. It's persons that are knowers, not natures. And if he's limited in knowledge because of having a human nature, then it straightaway follows that Jesus is limited in knowledge. Okay, so we just said he is and he isn't limited in knowledge. That will not fly. You cannot read the New Testament like that. Right, and so Mark thirteen thirty two, where it says, nobody knows the day or the hour, not even the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. This is a clear example of a difference in knowledge and even from a uh, Chalcedonian perspective where you have two natures, you still only have one person between those two natures. So I guess the position would be one of those natures is veiled, and it's not like 
providing the input of knowledge to the one mind. Is that possible? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the point about one mind. I mean, some well, of how them... about this? How about this? You have headphones on. You have the left ear and the right ear. The left ear is the divine nature. The right ear is the human nature that are both whispering knowledge or information or memories or whatever into the one mind. And Jesus has closed his left ear so that he can have a full human experience. Mm -hmm. So he's limited it, not cut it off. This has gone from bad to worse. I mean, because now you have Jesus, the, the human man, and then you also have these natures that can do things like speak. Uh, a nature wasn't just supposed to be an abstract property or something like that. A nature was supposed to be the kind of thing that could have knowledge and do miracles or the kind of thing that could suffer. So if the human nature is a kind of thing that can suffer uh, and the divine nature is a kind of thing that can do a miracle, then we're, we're talking about two intelligent beings there. <laughs> the problem is the New Testament only presents one character here. You know, there aren't two different voices coming out of him like, like he's possessed or something. It's all just consistently one character. So you don't see two agents acting through one body. You see a man, uh, an extraordinary man who has this extraordinary relationship with God and is empowered by God. To use the lingo, you don't see the activities of the two natures, the human nature and the divine nature. You see something like you see in the case of a prophet. There's a man and he's empowered by God to do amazing and miraculous things. And so the two beings active there are the man and God, or God's spirit. Uh, these natures just don't come into it. You know, they're not mentioned. So uh, another thing I noticed about the New Testament, the more I looked into, is that the writers are constantly distinguishing between Jesus and God. So at the start of every one of Paul's letters, he sends greetings from the two of them. And that's a weird thing to do if you think they're the same being not just in how it portrays them interacting, but just constantly setting them apart from one another. If all of this doesn't convince you that Jesus and God are two different beings, what would convince you? You know, he says God knows more. He says God's the one empowering him and in charge of him. Like, what does it take? Like, what does he have to do to prove that he's not God to you? <laughs> I can tell you what it would take to convince me of the Trinity. I would need to see some either explicit teaching or a clear implication about a tripersonal God. Or even, you know, something about this dance of three friends kind of idea. Or three modes. Anything like that, if it was clearly implied, I would, I would happily accept that. That would make me a Trinitarian. Well, don't you know that we have that right in Matthew 28, 19? <laughs> <laughs> What's your take on that text there, and how would you answer the standard Trinitarian claim that here we have threeness and oneness clearly expressed? Well, I mean, look, you've got to read the whole book. I mean, Jesus and God are two different characters. Jesus is the Son of God. That's the message. There's nothing about Jesus being one of the Trinity or having a divine nature or being equally divine. It makes sense on Unitarian views that people are baptized into the reality of God and His Son and His Spirit. And I take that to be a case of what I call unity slogans, where the early church, you had all these house churches founded by different apostles, and there was no infrastructure kind of connecting them. 
And people were inclined, as human beings are, to become sectarian and to attach to Peter or Paul or Apollos, etc., as Paul mentions in one place. And so it was a standard apostolic emphasis to say that, look, we all have the same God, we all have the same Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. And so this is a case of that. We're all baptized into one God, into one Son, and into one Spirit. About the, the singular name. Right. What's the name there? The name of a thing stands for its reality, right? So if you're baptized in, in the name of Jesus, you're baptized, in a sense, into Jesus, into the reality of his, his body and his fellowship. You can talk about being baptized uh, into Moses or John the Baptist in a similar way. And uh, look, there's not a teaching about a, tr- a name of a triune being in the text. You think about a Western movie, the bad guys just robbed the bank and I'm the one sheriff in the town and I want to get a posse together to go after the bad guys. And so I say, I'm going to deputize all you guys in the name of the governor, the president and the constitution or something like that, or the state of Missouri. It's what I'm baptizing on behalf of or into the reality of or on the authority of. It's not making any point at all. Yeah, what is the name of the state of Missouri, the president, right. and the governor? Nothing. It's not a literal name here. Yeah, they're, they're being considered as a reality. Was that a required formula? Well, in Acts, they're baptizing people into the name of Jesus. Uh, but then in the Didache, you see the triple formula. I'm okay with that. It's just you're not, f- not going to start a new church on the basis of that difference. Yeah, the Father, the Father. It's standard New Testament usage. The Father is the one God, so it's baptizing people into God, into the Son of God, and into the Spirit of God. That's okay. What would you say are some main texts that support biblical Unitarianism that you find very convincing? Really, the standard ones that. You know, Sean, you discussed many times and people like Patrick Novice, our mutual friend. So, you know, the clear places to look, First Corinthians eight. There's one God and there's also one Lord, and those are in distinction to one another. One God in some sense from whom are all things, one Lord in some sense through whom are all things. So we know they're different because of that distinction I just said. We know that the Lord refers generally to Jesus in Paul's letters, not always. It becomes a title that's applied to the risen Jesus on the model of Psalm 110.1. John 17, 1-3 is particularly clear. Jesus is praying to God and he says to the Father that you are the one true God. Well, if, if the Father is the one true God, then no one else is the one true God. Because the Father's the one. <laughs> Right. It's counting gods. There's no end of tomfoolery here from apologists. They want to read it uh, based on their presuppositions as saying that uh, the Father has this status, one true God. And they say, well, just because somebody has the quality one true God, it doesn't rule out that others also have that quality of one true God. So it's sort of like moving the word only there into the... Into the description or into the like the predicate. Yeah. Right. So you're not letting it modify. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. just, you know. It's a sleight of hand. They, I understand why that's what they wanted to say. I mean, Augustine, so Augustine felt the pinch of this. He said, well, 
Hmm, gosh, I think it should say that the Father and Son and maybe the Holy Spirit too are the one true God. Not that the Father is the one true God. Uh, did the Arians mess with this? And he just kind of merrily says, well, it should be understood as the, the Father and Son are the one true God and uh, just goes against what the text actually says. But at least he feels the pinch of the phrase. You know, if, if I say Obama's the one true president, right, then nobody else is. Obama's the only one. Right, exactly. Simple. Yeah, that's plain language. I mean, it couldn't get plainer. I like to focus on John because I think the theology of John is really clear, and I think it really firmly distinguishes between Jesus and God throughout the whole book. And there are just some problem passages that have to be untangled that people have made problematic. But I like in John 20, where the risen Jesus says to Mary, uh, don't hold on to me. I haven't yet ascended to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Okay, well, that statement presupposes that there is one who is the father of Sean Finnegan and Dale Tuggy, and also the father of Jesus, but who's also our God and Jesus is God. Okay, but God doesn't have a God. That's, that's the thing about monotheistic God. He's the top dog. He's, there's nobody over him in any sense. So, yeah, Jesus has a God. It turns out that that's asserted several times in the New Testament, you know, in Ephesians and Revelation for example, and this whole spin that, you know, he, he has a God in respect of his human nature. It's just not there. He doesn't have a God in his divine nature, but he has a God in his human nature. They could have said that if they wanted to say that. It says he has a God, presumably of all of him. It doesn't make that distinction. So those are like the favorite Unitarian proof texts I just mentioned, the favorite passages that we come to. But what really got my attention was just all the times when uh, the writers are constantly distinguishing between the two of them. And it's clear that they're supposed to be different beings. Yeah, and it seems like Paul is not a very good Trinitarian because he regularly calls the Father God and the Son Jesus, or Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, or the Lord Jesus, yeah. Yeah, and so why... Isn't he a better Trinitarian? Why why aren't these first generation followers better at expressing the beliefs that we know that they hold? Maybe they didn't hold those beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> the simplest explanation. And it, it gets really strange because Catholics and evangelicals are very different on this. A very educated Catholic theologian will just basically admit, no, the Trinity's not in the Bible. Nope, nope, later idea. They thought the Father was God. If you want to know why you should believe the Trinity, you should believe it because the bishop said it, and then later the Pope said it, and so on. That's why you should believe the Trinity, not because it's in the Bible. The Protestant is honor-bound to base their beliefs in the Bible. So now we got to go scraping and hint-hunting. And it gets almost to be a conspiracy theory. Look, he calls Jesus Lord. Well, that's, that's the term that was used as a substitute for Yahweh and the Septuagint, kurios. And so you get into all kinds of sophistical arguments, stuff like this in uh, the Gospel according to Mark. Is Jesus God in the Gospel according to Mark? Of course not. No reader who's unbiased would ever come to that conclusion. Jesus Except for is, Simon Gathercole. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Well, he's not, a, he's not an unbiased reader. Um, the writer hits you over the head with his thesis at the beginning, middle, and end. Several people say it. Hostile and friendly characters say it. You know, Peter says it. We think you're the son of God. 
the Christ. Uh, the Roman centurion says it at the end of the book. It starts right off telling you this is this is the account of Jesus, the Son of God. <laughs> so he's he's a he's a real human. He's the he's really the Messiah. That's what Son of God seems to mean there. It doesn't mean being with a divine nature or member of the Godhead or something like that. Uh, but in chapter one, it says that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy that says, "Make straight the way of the, of the Lord." Aha! Well, so he's. John the Baptist is making the way straight for Jesus, so he's the author is now hinting to you that Jesus really is the Lord God Almighty. Well, that's not what ancient readers took it as. They seem to have taken it as either Jesus is bringing a second fulfillment of that, or it's that God is working through Jesus. So uh, John the Baptist would be preparing the action of God through the man Jesus. Sure, he's preparing the way for Yahweh in his work through Jesus to reconcile the world. But if you get off in Mark chapter one, if you go off the rails and think that the, the writer is hinting that Jesus is God himself, this is just not good interpretation. Right. I think there's a big difference between deriving a doctrine from scripture and believing a doctrine and then using scripture to support it. Sean, yeah, the thing ahead. that drives me crazy is all this talk about rooting they know the Trinity's not taught in the Bible if they're very educated in theology and, and the Bible and textual scholarship. They also know a lot of them that it's not clearly implied there. But they want to say in some sense it's it's based on what's there or part of what's there. It's so it's not implied. Uh, they they just want to say it has something to do with it. So they say the doctrine is firmly rooted in the scriptures. Ah, rooted. But that's a classic weasel term. It doesn't really mean anything. It it makes it sound like they're connected strongly or that the doctrine grows out of that soil or something. Yeah. I it think wasn't the best, inevitable. Yeah. I think the most honest position would be to say that the Trinity is a model, a theory for understanding who God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are, and that this model is the best explanation that we have yes. for understanding how that relationship works and it coheres with scripture. Yes. Right? Yes. But that's not what they're saying. Well, there, there's a few of the most educated, most careful Trinitarian theologians who basically admit that it's a theory that's supposed to explain what is and isn't said in those texts, but it's not part of their contents. It's something right. brought in that allegedly best illuminates or explains their contents. That I would love, love to have that argument with anybody because it's not usually made. Uh, if you want to say this is the best explanation of those contents, wonderful. Now let's put it up next to some other explanations. Right. Now suddenly it's, it, it's, it's removed from this impenetrable fortress of... Right. The myth of primacy where Jesus and the apostles all taught it, and so it has the, their authority attached to it. Mm -hmm. Now it's just another idea in the marketplace of ideas, and we right. can take it take it apart and look at its insides and compare it to other ideas that are out there. Yeah, and and I feel like that's the best way to approach it. And it's a serious theory. I mean, it can be made into a serious theory. It can be made into several different ones. But that's fine. I don't have a problem with theories. We can talk about, for instance, Molinism or divine timelessness when it comes to divine foreknowledge. Great. 
uh, let's not pretend that Molinism is taught in Scripture, because it's obviously not. Nobody thought of it until early modern times. But now that it's been thought of, let's see if it best explains the data. So I'm very happy to stack up uh, Unitarian approaches versus the Trinitarian ones. But the thing is that Trinitarians will not go that far. It's too much effort. It's too much work. The tradition doesn't really tolerate giving the minority report a full hearing. Right. Yeah. Sadly. What books would you recommend for people who are on the fence about this issue or specific podcast episodes that you've done or other resources to help people really dig into this and hear a good case from a biblical Unitarian perspective here? Well, one that I really enjoyed was uh, called The Son of God, Three Views on the, of the Identity of Jesus, which is written by Irons, Dixon, and Smith. And I had the privilege of interviewing those three gentlemen. Irons is a standard kind of evangelical reform, Trinitarian. Dixon is so-called Arian, which is a type of Unitarian view. And uh, Dustin Smith is a uh, the type of Unitarian that doesn't believe in the preexistence of Jesus or the personhood of the Holy Spirit. That's good in that it's an accessible, disciplined discussion between three obviously serious Christians and that's more about Christology than specifically the Trinity, but it's a good and respectful exchange. It's interesting to see how good a case the various sides can make. As far as the Trinity, for somebody approaching it from the biblical angle, one book that I like is called One God and One Lord, which is written by authors named Grazer, Lynn, and Shaneheit. And it's nice in that it goes through all the popular proof texts and utilizes a lot of modern era Unitarian scholarship and sort of unravels a lot of bad arguments. And I don't agree with everything in it. And, you know, there's places where the arguments can be tightened up, but I'm trying to write two books right now, one more scholarly and one more popular to help people find their way through the issue. But those won't be out for probably another year. Um, you could also look at Anthony Buzzard's Jesus was not a Trinitarian. Right. I like the title, right? Is, is it obviously true or is it blasphemously, ridiculously wrong? Well, right. you know, the Roman Catholics would say it's obviously true. Like Nobody was a Trinitarian in the first century. That's right, if Trinitarian means believing in a triune God, in a tripersonal God with one usia. No, nobody there holds that, that type of theory. But yeah, I mean, should you take seriously Jesus' theology? I think so. There's more to Christianity than what Jesus taught because divine revelation continued through the apostles, through Peter and Paul. That's how we got out from under the Mosaic law. Jesus was a law keeper, but uh, revelation continued to where the apostles learned that you could convert to the Christian movement and not be, become a law keeping Jew. So, but anyway, as far as Jesus' theology, right, that hasn't been overwritten by anything, presumably. This is supposed to be the font of all divine wisdom. You know, the, the treasures, of, treasures of God's wisdom are in his life and his teaching. What does Jesus teach about God? Well, that God is a loving father <laughs> who, who loves sinners and wants them to repent and uh, who sent his son to save the world. 
as somebody that knows the number of hairs on your head and is willing to hear your prayers and accept you into his family through Jesus. And Jesus has this really fascinating agreement with a Jewish scribe about who God is in Mark chapter 12. Then mm-hmm. I think it's a place where he really clearly identifies his theology with the traditional Jewish theology that we find throughout the Hebrew Bible. And that is not something that we ever see get called into question. For example, in the conflict in the book of Acts, nobody says, oh, well, you're teaching, there's another one that's equal with God, or there's another one who is eternal beside God, or something. There's none of that. It's just like, in our, all the conflict in Acts is argument over whether or not Jesus is Messiah, which is a distinct Jewish category, yep. quite separate from God. The, the big two arguments in New Testament times are whether Jesus really is the Messiah, who really was risen from the dead and vindicated by God and raised, and whether, like I mentioned, Christians have to keep the law. Those, those were the controversies. If they're coming out with a new doctrine of God, I mean, that is the biggest mm-hmm. doctrine, of course, mm-hmm. would that not cause a stir among Jews of the first century? That's right. Yeah. I mean, and theologians will say things like, you know, the Christ event forced everybody to radically reconsider everything. No, you you still see people in the end of the 100s that just habitually refer to God, that is the Father, as the Creator. And when the Logos theologians start teaching that Jesus is the direct Creator, that God had to make everything through Him, there's an outcry that, wait, we don't believe in two creators, we're Christians. We believe in one Creator, God the Father Almighty, just like the creeds say. So there was no theological controversy about just the core theology of God. The New Testament theology, as you point out, is that Yahweh is the one unique God, the uncreated, eternal, perfectly good uh, source of everything else, who chose to reveal himself first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles through the Jews. Any other resources or uh, podcast episodes you want to recommend? Something every Christian should do who's educated and who really wants to look thoroughly into it is why not find out where these things came from historically? So I've done podcast episodes on some of the early creeds like the Apostles' Creed, which isn't Trinitarian, by the way. It's Unitarian. And then I've done episodes on uh, the controversy that arose about this presbyter named Arius in Alexandria and the ensuing famous council at Nicaea in 325, presided over by the emperor. And then I've started to work my way in podcast episodes through that controversy, and I've got got bogged down, but I'm going to keep going at some point. Maybe, Maybe this winter, we'll see. But yeah, it's just interesting to see what they were thinking at the time, what the controversy was really about. Sometimes Trinitarians will describe Nicaea as... The church was just happily trucking along as Trinitarians. Then these bad guys came along and started making up stuff. And the church said, no, we're not going to take that. You sit down. You shut up. But no, no, it it was all very much from within the Catholic movement of that time. The so-called Arian side, I mean, the Arians arguably were the more traditional party. And the term Arian was just a vicious smear of polemical term made up by Athanasius. 
because most of the people that history calls Arians weren't disciples of Arius. So yeah, it's interesting to get a better historical perspective on how they interpreted the Bible, what they were thinking. And really, the first Trinitarian creed that I think implies that there's a triune God, although it doesn't clearly say it, I think the, the Creed of 381 at Constantinople is the first one that implies or assumes a tripersonal God. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and then the disturbing thing about that is the emperor in 380 decided that the Nicene side was right and the so-called Arians were all dead wrong and horrible people and going to hell. The emperor Theodosius decided who the winner was and then he called the mean of bishops in his own city. He called the, the council... And we don't have the proceedings from it, but evidently it was a foregone conclusion. And then as soon as the council's over in 381, he starts outlining all the other types of Christianity, which was a lot of mainstream Catholics at the time. And so it, it was literally put into the standard of Christian teaching by the force of law. Well, this is not how we do things, people. Right. And uh, this was an obvious abuse of religious freedom and conscience. Emperors don't get to decide theological arguments. And that's, that's disturbing. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong. That doesn't mean you shouldn't believe it. But that means maybe you should wonder if there was a little more to the other side than people let on. There's a great book about that called uh, AD 381. And the author is, um, I think his name is Freeman. All it is is a historical account of how those events went down before, during, after that 381 council. It's disturbing yeah. stuff. All right. Any other concluding thoughts? Just this, you know, I appreciate the Restitutio podcast. Uh, the Trinity's podcast is a bunch of heady stuff with this crazy philosopher discoursing about history and abstract arguments. And uh, the Restitutio podcast, I think, is a more balanced podcast about Christian living and just what it means to be a well-rounded disciple of Jesus. And part of that involves accepting Jesus's theology. Yeah, but there's a lot more to it than that. So uh, I appreciate your podcast, whether it's uh, some of your own good choices among sermons, sometimes by Trinitarians, uh, or your discussions that you have with your panel or the teachings that you provide. So keep up the great work, Sean. Thank you, Dale. Uh, very kind words there. And thanks for taking the time out of your day. I know that this is a busy time of year for you, getting ready for classes and everything. Thanks for talking today. Yeah, great talking to you. Before I wrap things up, I just wanted to read out some of your feedback. On my last interview with Dale Tuggy, interview number six, Michael Medlock commented, Thanks much. I enjoyed the discussion. The goal of our instruction is love. 1 Timothy 1.5 In addition, Paul Peterson said, Excellent. Thank you both. Tuggy articulated something that has been brewing in the back of my mind lately. Quote, God would rather have ten humble Trinitarians that are trying to follow Jesus every day and enact his teachings in their daily lives He'd rather have ten of those guys than one constantly battling and self-righteous, angry, condemning, doctrine-obsessed Unitarian who's got the correct theology. So don't be that guy. If we're that guy, the movement is doomed. End quote. Thanks, Michael and Paul, for taking the time to leave a comment on that episode. If you want to check out that interview or any of our other shows, visit restitutio.org. 
Also, if you haven't already, please leave us a review in iTunes or Stitchers so that you can help others find the show. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.